Good morning and welcome. Our next session is uh, dealing with Scripture. Last time, last evening, we dealt with the fact that the elect and the reprobate will have conflict because God has ordained it, and it is for the benefit, for the blessing of the elect, and for the cursing, the punishment of the reprobate. Now, we will, for this next hour, we'll deal with the fact that these reprobate, these unbelievers, these false brothers, they use no scripture whatsoever. No scripture whatsoever, usually. Rarely do they, and if they do, they take it out of context. Now, let's bow in a word of prayer, and then we'll proceed with the subject. Father, thank you for giving us another day of life. Thank you for this morning to gather. We gather in the name of Jesus Christ, and we pray that you will help us to understand your word, help, help us to handle it accurately. May we embrace everything it teaches us, and may we have a wholehearted devotion to it. May we love your law day and night. May we meditate on it day and night. May the word of Christ dwell in us richly. May we always speak, as it were, the oracles of God. May your words always be on our lips. May that be precious and sweet to us. May we use your word as the sword of the Spirit to attack all of the flaming missiles of the evil one. Give us, Lord, that heart, that mind. May we be fully and wholly devoted to you through your holy word, which is the only true knowledge of you for our salvation and sanctification. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. No scripture, even if we beg them, even if we beg them, if we are persistently asking them, they don't. Yet, they should know better, having sat under our teaching. They know what we think about that. They know how we exhort and admonish the people constantly to know the word, to use the word, to be engrossed in the word of God. These disgruntled people refuse to use scripture throughout the conflict and take it out of context whenever they rarely use it. They'll rarely use it, and then it's obviously out of context. It's so blatantly out of context. They vehemently despise the, uh, the authority of Holy Scripture. That's really what the problem is. The Scriptures are contradicting their unrepentant, sinful heart. And when that happens, they know they can't go to the Scripture because the Scripture will not support them. That's why they avoid the scripture. They don't bring it to the table. It's not a part of the discussion. It's not a part of the argument. It's not a part of the dispute. However you want to look at the interaction between these disgruntled people and the truth of God's word by the messenger of God. They refuse to use scripture. Yes, these are some things we have heard. I did, quote, I did not bring my Bible because I did not want it to be about that. One man told us, a 70-year-old man who had been complimenting us for a couple of years about how wonderful it was to learn the Word of God in the church. And he learned more from us than he had learned his whole life. He said, then another one, they're just going to keep quoting Scripture to you. Now, in the middle of the conflict, this is Joab Nabal St. James, Jared James. He said to one couple, 
And I don't know if he said it to the wife, because it's not beyond him to contact only the wife. Um, I don't know if he said it to the wife or to the husband and wife, whatever. It's, it said, he said something to this effect, and these are almost the words verbatim. They're just going to keep quoting scripture to you. As though that's a sin. We asked this reprobate pastor, the same one, Joab, um, about two dozen times in our final phone call with him. Pastor Jerry Jackson and I, together, we were on a, our last phone call with him. We suspected it might be our last one, and it has been our last one. He was willing to talk to us one last time and rant and rave, be belligerent, keep on talking and talking and talking, going in circles, not getting anywhere, wrangling about words, not bringing up a single scripture, though we asked him perhaps dozens of, at least two dozen times between the two of us, we asked him, give us a scripture. What are you talking about? When you say hypercriticism, define it. Define it. Give us a biblical definition of it. Give it to us. Keep, we kept asking him. And then finally, he brought up 1 Corinthians 13 and took it out of context. Because the moment he brought it up, because that's the love chapter, right? You're not loving people. Then I immediately refuted him. I said, that's contrary to what the whole letter of 1 Corinthians is about. It's contrary to what it says in the middle of the chapter. Does not rejoice with unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. True love does. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Right there in the middle of 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter. And for, for that matter, the rest of the letter, I told him on the phone, and Pastor Jackson is a witness, I said, the rest of the 1 Corinthians, he is railing against the unrepentant sins of the Corinthians throughout the whole letter, from immorality to false, doc, uh, false theology, everything. So how is it that when we are speaking against false theology and false morality, that we're unloving when it comes to our attention? Again, we're not in our basements, in our diapers, or in our pajamas, in our mother's basement, dark and dirty basement, because we have nothing better to do in life, scouring the internet, looking for false teachers. But that's the image that they portray of us. No, they do those kinds of things. How is it that Joab has so much time on social media to post and criticize and even criticize this conference? I thought he's a busy pastor taking care of the souls of his people. No, he's a liar. We asked him, can you provide one text from Holy Scripture to define hypercriticism? We asked him that from the very beginning of the controversy at the end of March this year, 2022, and to date, he has not provided a single verse, even though supposedly this subject has been on his mind since right before the raging pandemic in early 2020. And then he had the audacity to confront us without the scripture. What scripture motivated you? What scripture convicted you? Joab. And he still hasn't provided it because there is no scripture. It is an invention of his own mind. But he's just a recent example and the epitome of what we have seen time and time again for many, many years and many incidents. Should we be surprised? No. Luke 12, Luke 12, 57. Luke 12, 57. And why do you not even on your own initiative judge 
what is right. They don't, on their own initiative, judge what is right because they don't want to know what is right. They don't want to know what is true. And that is found in the holy and righteous word of God. John 7, 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Don't judge according to appearance, but with righteous judgment. Well, how will we know the difference between righteousness and wickedness? Be, if we are familiar with the word of righteousness, Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, calls the word of God the word of righteousness. That's how we will know. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, 1 Corinthians 4, 6, he says that you might, that in us, you might learn not to exceed what is written, that you might learn not to exceed what is written. Well, how do they exceed what's written? When they have their own wisdom and they don't bring up the Bible. In order that no one of you might be arrogant in behalf of one against the other. So who is the arrogant one? The one who never calls the scriptures to attention. That is the arrogant one, not the one quoting scripture and begging the others, the attackers, give me a scripture, please. What is the basis on which you are approaching me? Please accuse me of a sin based on scripture, not your own imaginations, not your own feeble dotages, nothing like that. Just what the scripture says. And if you don't do that, you are the arrogant one, all the while accusing us of being arrogant or proud. No, you are shamelessly arrogant and proud. 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Yes, every pastor is taught this or shown this in one way or another if he goes to the cemetery to study. But they don't practice it. They do not practice it. They don't believe all scripture is inspired because they don't use it. They don't believe it's profitable for teaching because they don't use it. They only abuse it. They don't use it. They abuse it. They don't do it for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. They don't do it. They don't believe that it is adequate, that we might be adequate, equipped for every good work. They absolutely do not believe it. They say they believe it. They say, oh yes, we believe in the inspiration of scripture, but they don't practice it. The proof is in the pudding. It's not what you say, it's what you do. Actions speak louder than words. The Bible also says that too, in, the, in its own way. Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Do not be merely hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Hearers only delude themselves, James says. James 1, 19 to 25. Those who merely hear and don't do it are worthless. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Titus 1, 16. Another point on their lack of scripture. They never, the second point, they never identify sin biblically. If the word sin comes up, and it's usually not them bringing it up because all the while they're saying, no, 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 these are just concerns, questions, where these are just suggestions, these are just um, ruminations of my own mind. They'll say things like that. 
I'm just trying to figure this out. Help me figure this out. Let's, let's talk about this as brothers. You know, they'll say things like that, but really, they believe it's sin, but they know if they went to the Scriptures, then the Scriptures' definition of sin would undermine them. So they don't go to the Bible to define sin. They rarely accuse us of sin initially. After we confront them with their pretension, after we confront them with their superficial approach, then they get incensed at us. They get furious with us. Then they will start accusing us of sin. But before that, they don't. They don't because they don't come, at, uh, uh, come to it in a biblical way. I'm not accused, quote, I'm not accusing you of sin. These are just questions, suggestions, concerns. I would have trouble, um, another one says, I would have trouble going to a church with such a statement on new Calvinism. One man said, the church statement explains new Calvinism, what it is and why it is unbiblical. And he says, after this man, this other man knew me also for 10 years. He knew me for 10 years, and he has the audacity to say to me, I would not go to a church with such a statement on New Calvinism, and he says to me, I don't know what New Calvinism is. Why don't you explain it to me? Now he's behaving like a madman after knowing me for 10 years and says, I don't know what New Calvinism is. He just wanted to rant and rave and be belligerent in a personal meeting with me for me to explain what New Calvinism is when I have been saying this for 10 years. It only takes one or two, maybe three occasions of hearing the, the preaching or a conversation with me for that subject to come up, and it comes up all the time. It's on the church website. And that he has the audacity to behave like a madman. I don't know what that is. Why don't you explain it to me? Then they will say, are you ever wrong? Of course I am, but that's not the issue. The issue is there's a sin on the surface, and so we have to deal with it. Let's deal with the sin. That's the issue. No one has perfect theology. No, they do. They have perfect theology. That's why they nitpick us. They're, they're trying to tell us we don't have perfect theology, which we can readily admit that we have to grow in sanctification. But they don't have it either, but they present themselves as having perfect theology because it's perfect enough to criticize us in their pomp and arrogance. Why does everything have to be black and white? And then he storms out of the house. If people don't agree with you on every issue, then you think they're going to hell, they say. Well, if you deny the gospel of Jesus Christ by saying that there was a different gospel in the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 6-10 says, it's a different gospel and you are under a curse. Okay, then what if somebody denies the Trinity? What if somebody says homosexuality is not a sin? So on and so forth. There are many examples like that on serious subjects. And these popular preachers, many of them, they reject these fundamental doctrines. But they also reject many other doctrines. And, and we will explain what we mean by the, the definition of sin. Because their views of sin and heresy are perverted. They are distorted. They say also the Bible's not clear. There's different ways to look at that. We need to make room for different views. We need to make room for different views. May I ask you, is there a verse in the Bible, in the red letters of the Lord Jesus, 
Is there a place where the Lord Jesus said, it's okay to agree to disagree. Let's just agree to disagree agreeably. Is there any place where Jesus was that way? On any subject, on any subject, it's okay to agree to disagree? He never had that approach. The apostles never had that approach. The prophets did not have that approach. Who in the Bible, which verse of the Bible has that approach? If it's not there, then it's coming from sinful man. This is why they refuse to go to the Bible to define sin biblically. So how shall we define sin? Romans 14, 23. Whatever is not from faith is sin. If it doesn't arise out of faith, it is sin. And how is faith going to be known or promoted or preached? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So then, if we don't have everything we do based on the word of Christ, we cannot claim that we have faith in Christ. Not at that moment, at least, if one is humble enough to repent when that sin is, is in, uh, made aware to him. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Also, James 4, 17. James 4, 17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And many times, these popular preachers, they know exactly the right thing. And on other occasions, they say the right thing. But then when the rubber meets the road, they never do the right thing because they want to be on the same stage with their colleagues at these big conferences and get the fame and the fortune and the fun associated with that. They know the right thing to do and they don't do it. So then it's a sin. And is it a sin to say it's a sin? Yes. With these people, the only sin is accusing an unrepentant sinner of sin in their mind. Further, 1 John 3, verse 4. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, right? If we practice sin, we practice lawlessness. What is lawlessness? It's antinomianism. It's being against the law of God or the law of Christ, the law of liberty, the law of love, which is embodied in the Ten Commandments. You can find all Ten Commandments in one way or another in this letter of 1 John. All Ten Commandments can be found in the letter of 1 John. Him explaining the right use of it or the wrong use of the Ten Commandments, the breach of it or the practice of it in the book of 1 John. And so when he says sin is lawlessness, well, that's what's going on. That's what's going on. And in these churches where they don't preach the Word of God, the Holy Word of God, and the law of Christ as embodied in the Ten Commandments, the two greatest commandments embodied and explained in the Ten Commandments, when they don't explicitly teach that, there is all kinds of sin happening in those churches and the pastors, they just blink their eyes and walk the other way and ask what's for lunch. That's what goes on. It literally goes on. They completely ignore it. And even in the small churches who are panting, trying to be like the big churches, it happens in those churches too because of lawlessness. And John says, sin is lawlessness. 1 John 5, 
17, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. All unrighteousness is sin. Well, how will we know what's unrighteous? Remember Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. The word of righteousness is the Bible. So whatever contradicts the Bible is unrighteous or wicked. Anything. Any sin. Now, is it really any sin? Yes. Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfection. Our heavenly Father has perfection, therefore we ought to pursue perfection. We ought to pursue it. And in our pursuit of it, that's when they kick and scream. That's when they scratch and claw. That's when they lash out with vicious words. That's when they hate it, because unrepentant sin which is in arrogance, in pride, when it's brought to the surface and we call attention to it and they re reject the proper biblical response to it, then they lash out and say, no, you're sinning in this way. No, we're not sinning by confronting it. We are pointing it out and you must repent of it. Galatians 3.10. Also, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Galatians 3.10. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Then, how can we say, or how does the apostle say, there's a curse if you don't abide by all things? All things, everything. Here's an example. There are a few examples in this book of Galatians. Let's look at 2.11. Galatians 2.11 to 14. 2.11 to 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, they began to withdraw and hold himself, or he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Well, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? In this passage, we have a serious charge. Actually, Joab, Nabal St. James, when he explained this passage in the first phone call in, on March the 22nd, of 2022, he said, you know, Paul, he confronted Peter, but he still considered him a brother. He didn't condemn him. He said something like that in that phone call. And yet, let's notice. Let's notice whether he was in a state of condemnation. And let's also notice what the sin was. What was the sin that deserved condemnation? Verse 11. He confronts Cephas to his face because he stood condemned. He said, Joab said, he didn't condemn him. Right there it says he stood condemned. Paul says it. Paul's writing Galatians because he stood condemned. So who's right? Is Paul right or Joab? Paul is. It says he stood condemned. And then what was 
his sin. He would not eat with the Gentiles at a point. He stood aloof, and he would not eat with the Gentiles. So if we don't eat with the Gentiles, or we uh, Gentiles don't eat with the Jews, is that considered a serious sin today? Would people say, well, that's such a sin, such a serious sin that you stand condemned, and if you don't repent, you're going to hell. Would anybody preach that today? No. Well, no, you know, some people just don't get along. There are different personalities. You know, some people like one kind of food, others like another kind of food. So you just can't blame them. That's the kind of argument or response people would have today if people didn't eat with each other. But here, he says, he stood condemned. And not only did Cephas stand condemned, it says in 13, the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. The rest of the Jews, Cephas and Barnabas, are all hypocrites. And according to Matthew 23, where do hypocrites go? They go to hell, to Gehenna, the lake of fire. All hypocrites. And this is the sin. It's the sin of hypocrisy, which he points out in verse 14. It's hypocrisy, absolute hypocrisy, and therefore it is a serious sin. But these false teachers don't take sin that, that way. They don't define sin the way the Bible does. Third point, they tout love and grace. They're always using these words, love and grace. Um, while being very hateful and ungracious to us. While they keep saying love and grace, love and grace, grace and love, grace and love, compassion, kindness, goodness, love and grace, love and grace. They keep saying these words in the middle of the conflict while being very nasty toward us in an unbiblical way. When I say nasty, I mean sinful way that's contrary to the way the Bible expects us to practice love and grace. They are absolute hypocrites. In fact, when they say love, which is usually Arminians who hijack the word love with, and invest it with an unbiblical meaning, and then Calvinists are the ones who hijack grace, or new Calvinists, they hijack the word grace and invest it with an unbiblical meaning. But love is actually lawlessness to them, and grace is actually licentiousness. Love is lawlessness. Grace is licentiousness. That's really what they are about. Satan and his sons use biblical words with an unbiblical meaning and common words with an uncommon meaning. When confronted, they claim they did not say the words and then wrangle about words. No, I didn't say that. No, yes, you did say it. Two or three of us were right there. We heard you say it. What do you mean you didn't say it? Yes, you did say it. And then they wrangle about, well, I didn't mean that with that word. Then what did you mean? And then they use a synonym of the word, and we say, well, that means the same thing. Dangerous, perilous means the same thing, right? Dangerous or perilous, right? Um, a, a sofa or a couch. Aren't we talking about basically the same thing? We're not talking about an airplane. We're not talking about a microphone. We're not talking about a table, Right? So they use these synonyms, and they say, well, no, that's not what I meant. I meant this other thing. Well, it's the same thing. What are you talking about? You're talking like a madman. They say things like this. 
pretending to be loving and gracious. Quote, I'm just a poor little sheep. I just love the little congregation at Morningstar. I'm not your enemy, I'm your friend. I'm your brother and I love you very much. He said those words to me and I never saw him again while he continued causing trouble and speaking against me months later. Months later, speaking against me because he contacted a relative that he had no contact with for a long time and he knew that that relative went to a Pentecostal church and had no concern for that relative while he was in the Pentecostal church. But when that relative started to come to this church, suddenly he shows concern for his spiritual well-being and contacts him. Utter, utter deceit. There's no love and grace there. Further, um, this same man would not give me the courtesy of a personal meeting to study scripture and his excuse was anxiety or nervousness that caused an upset stomach, preventing him from going to work for two days. And then he canceled the meeting. Why? What's going to happen? We're going to sit at the table and be gentlemen across the table with our Bibles open, and I'll say, what do you have to say, sir? Let's see. And, okay, well, you have a scripture for the point you're making. Let's see if you are correct or incorrect. Correct? And you all know, and many of you know, that that would be my approach. And in fact, Joab, Nabal St. James, and his best friend, another pastor, they told me a few years ago that they have heard me many times in public address questions, and even in private. But in public they have heard me, and they compared me to a famous man who died many years ago. They compared me to him because they knew he, though he was famous, that he was sometimes a bit curt or brief and a bit on the rude side a few times with his audience when they asked him questions. They said, I'm not that way. And I don't think I've changed since they've made that comment about public or private questions. And yet they now say, I have no love and no grace. Why? Because I won't endorse their sin. Um, also, there was one woman in our church in Texas. She, she wrote after he, um, he and she, the husband and wife, left the church because he uh, pretended to repent. He committed serial adultery with multiple women, too many to count. These are his words. And then he tried to say, well, I don't understand what New Calvinism is. Why don't you teach me about that? And I had known him for 10 years. And then... They leave the church, and the wife, she writes a bitter and caustic letter from her to my wife, delivered by hand by the husband at the office to my wife, when they both know we use one email address. So who's being loving and gracious there? You see these examples? We can go on and on. There are so many things. These people are full of this fatal hypocrisy that will lead to hell. Well, Luke 22, Luke 22, 52 to 53. Luke 22, 52. And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness 
are yours. Why is it now they are treating him like a robber when he was always open to them all the time? Now they are treating him in the dark with a mob and with swords and clubs as though he is a robber. Why? Did anything change in Christ? No. It changed in them. It, got, it went from bad to worse. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. 1 Timothy 6, 20. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. We see here the apostle warning Timothy that the false teachers, heretics, use the word knowledge, but not in the right way. He says, they falsely call their doctrine knowledge, as though it's true knowledge, when it's false knowledge. And thereby, they undermine the true knowledge of Holy Scripture. They are using biblical words with an unbiblical meaning. Also, 2 Timothy 2, 14. 2.14, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. They love to wrangle on and on and on for hours and hours and hours, back and forth, back and forth in text exchanges and emails, long email letters. It, it's unending. This is the way they are. They just need to blurt and and puke everything that's in their corrupt inner soul. That's the way they are. And they can't help it. They cannot resist it. Point number four. They are relativistic and universalistic. Relativistic and universalistic, but not toward us. They seem to be very dogmatic, they know exactly where we stand and exactly why we're wrong. But everybody else, no, no. Relativism is saying, your way is okay, my way is okay, and we'll just hold hands and reach heaven together. And then universalism has to do with believing that everybody is going to heaven. And these people usually are the same ones who never speak against Roman Catholicism. Because Roman Catholicism is the biggest example in the world, and they rarely or never speak against Roman Catholicism. They might give lip service to it. Well, no, 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 Catholicism isn't right. No, no, Protestantism is right, or we're, we're right, yes, yes. They'll say it softly like that, but they won't say it with conviction. They won't say it with confidence. They won't say it repeatedly and make it black and white. That's how you know they're pretending. And they don't actually believe that all Catholics or all Methodists and so forth, that they're going to hell. They don't believe it. In fact, they have great confidence that they are saved and will, quote, not lose their salvation. I know I won't lose my salvation. I know I'm saved. God saved me when I was 10. God saved me when I was 20. I know I'm saved. They will say that very boldly with great confidence. Quote, Mormons and Catholics, they're going to heaven. 
One deacon said at Morning Star Baptist Church, he believed that Mormons and Catholics will go to heaven. And then I was asked once, do you think Catholics are saved? And I knew that the, the liberal pastor believed that, and he was trying to get me to say the same, or just, just to have me on record saying the opposite, so then he could use it against me. Do you think Catholics are saved? He believed so. I did not and do not. Another friend, a Baptist friend, pastor, he's still a pastor. He said, I have Methodist and Church of Christ friends who are saved. I have Methodist and Church of Christ friends who are saved. He said that to me. When I was talking about the various denominations, there was something that happened and we were just talking about things. And he said, well, I have Methodist and Church of Christ friends who are saved. Really? Really? If you believe in free will, you're saved? If you believe that, in, in, that's in the Methodist Church, uh, what about the Church of Christ? In the Church of Christ, the moment you are immersed in water by them, only them, the moment you are immersed, that's the moment of your salvation. So the trigger, the, the ultimate trigger of your salvation is touching the water, being immersed in the water. That's the Church of Christ. And they also believe in free will and other false doctrines. The Church of Christ. So how can somebody who believes that way in the Church of Christ be saved? That is their official doctrine. Unless they're liberal. There's liberals everywhere who think everybody's going to heaven, except us. Then, God saved me before I was a Calvinist. We heard. God saved me before. But we never say you must understand everything perfectly to be saved. We never say that. We say the opposite of that. We believe in progressive sanctification. We believe my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. John 10, 22 to 30. That's what we believe. That you learn little by little and sometimes by leaps and bounds you learn and you grow and you begin to reject your false doctrines. But there is a core of belief that God uses, a core of truth that God uses to save people. They may not know the terminology. They may not know all the scriptures. We, are, we believe that and we teach that all the time. But if they are God's sheep, they will want to hear the voice of Christ, which is found in the word of Christ and interpreted in the soul by the spirit of Christ. That's the doctrine. And also, another one said, are all these good people in the free will Baptist churches wrong? He assumed, are all these good people, so salvation is by good works, in the free will Baptist churches wrong? Well, is the Bible universalistic and relativistic? Micah 3.5, Micah 3.5, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. You see, when, whenever I was prominent in the, universe, in the seminary, cemetery and, and in the Oklahoma Babylonian University, also called Oklahoma Baptist University in Shawnee, Oklahoma. There, when, when I was there, then 
people would want to know what I think. They would want to know what I think and what I believe. But, and then if it was in accordance with their desire to climb the ladder, climb the ladder in the local church, in the local association of churches, it, within the state of Oklahoma or on the national level in the Baptist church or Baptist denomination, as much as they could use whatever I said or their association with me at the cemetery in Fort Worth, then f fine and good, well and good. But when they couldn't use it because I spoke against it, then no, yeah, Dr. Moodliard, no, don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. That's how it would be. And that's how it is. Because I had nothing to help them get more money or fame. In fact, I was doing the opposite. Telling them the truth. And, and Joab is also trying to uh, regather or associate with more churches and the I'll Be Dishonest website, the Tim Conway, who is a con man, Tim Conway website, it's called I'll Be Honest. He's posting a lot of that, repeating a lot of that uh, garbage and heresy, and that has an association of churches, many churches who like that website and, and like those conferences and teachings and whatever. So he is trying to, instead of having just a few people come to his church, he wants more and more people to come to church. He does want that. He, he will deny it and he'll call me a liar, but he is the liar son of the devil. Luke 6, 26, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. There is a curse on us when everybody speaks well of us because the false prophets and their followers were the same way. John 5, 43 to 44. John 5, 43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Coming, going in the name of Christ, people don't believe it. The true name of Christ. They don't believe it. The true death and resurrection of Christ, they don't believe it. The true grace of Christ, they don't believe it. But they will happily follow somebody who comes in his own name. Tim Conway. And there are many other names. Many other names. They keep bringing up these names and say, well, he believes that way. Are you saying he's wrong? Are you saying he's going to hell? Well, if he doesn't repent... And there's more than just that sin that you're talking about, but that sin is enough. You don't know what you're talking about, sir. Both in reality, what these people actually believe, and also biblically, what the Bible says about those sins. You don't know what you're talking about. And you are so proud, without any grace, without any humility, you won't even sit calmly to study the Bible together on topic after topic after topic to be shown that you are wrong and you must repent or go to hell. And then we also have Galatians 1.10. Galatians 1.10, where the apostle says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? 
Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He is seeking to please God. If he were still seeking to please men, he would have a large following. He would still be a Pharisee and have the whole nation of the Jews. Millions of people looking up to him for the rest of his life, living for 70, 80 years and dying with this noble reputation among his own countrymen. But he was willing to give that up because it was worthless. He's a slave of Christ and he belongs to God. So he doesn't care if everybody likes him or not. Galatians 4.16, the same book that speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, which includes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He's got a, a lot of very stern things to say against him in love. 4.16, he anticipates it. 4.16, have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? Have I therefore become your enemy? Yes, because now Paul is not a notable man, not a notable man in the eyes of the world. So they want to be relativistic and universalistic, but Paul is saying, no, there is only one way, and that way is a narrow path, Matthew 7, 13 to 29. It's a narrow path. You must strive to enter by the narrow gate or narrow door, narrow path. Luke 13, 22 to 30. It is that way. It's not wide. It is narrow. But they will say, well, it's too narrow. By whose definition, though? Whose definition? Go to the Bible for the definition of narrow, not your perverse, sinful definition. Number five, point number five, they pit their favorite celebrities against us to exploit their cliches and popularity for their own fame, fortune, and fun. Yes, they exploit the, their pet favorable celebrities against us, but they have an agenda. They want the sins of their favorite celebrities. And then they tempt us. They approach us and they tempt us. They bend over backwards a thousand times to excuse the blatant sins of their celebrities, but nitpick us to death. They bend over backwards for the blatant public sins of their celebrities, but then if we stand up or sit down, we shake their hands, or don't shake their hands. We give them a hug or don't give them a hug. We give them a kiss or we don't give them a kiss. We give them some food, we don't give them some food. Whatever we do, we talk to them on the phone or we text them, we talk to them in person. Anything we do, they will nitpick us to death. John the Baptist came eating and uh, did not come eating and drinking and they said he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say behold a gluttonous man and a drunkard, the friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's all the same. Nitpickers are malcontents. They are caustic and poisonous in their very core, in their soul. And they lash out whenever they cannot contain themselves. They burst open because they lack self-control. They have it for a while, and then it blows up. Quote, are you the only one right? 
No. But we're talking about an issue you brought up, and we're going to the Scriptures to see what the Scripture says about it. So, who's right? God or your favorite pastor? Celebrity. Are you ever wrong? Yes, I'm, I'm wrong when I give you too much grace. Yes, I'm wrong when I misjudged you for 10 years or didn't push back hard enough with you over those 10 years. Yes, I am wrong. Can you admit it? No, they're never wrong. They're never wrong. They think they're always right. But then they assume that malady on us. They impose that on us. My father, one founding member of the church, would disagree with you. This is after many years. My father would disagree with you. Really? Um, what about the Bible? I have a Reformation study Bible here, and it says that imprecations were only for the Old Testament. A Reformation study Bible, and it's here, it says here in the notes that imprecations, that is, praying for curses against one's enemies, was only for the Old Testament. And this woman, she carped and criticized both Pastor Jackson and me, Repeatedly, we even calmly sat down with her to explain. We even held a conference on the imprecations of the Bible. We elaborated on this doctrine. We explained it from Scripture, and she was still bitter, caustic, and nasty, not only towards us as men, but also towards the family of the Jacksons. She and another woman. Why do you not like Steve Lawson, Ravenhill, Leonard Ravenhill, Tim Conway. Paul was a popular preacher. Have you heard that? Did you ever know that Paul was a popular preacher? According to that definition of popularity, his definition, you could say, I'm a popular preacher. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because over the years, because of all of the hundreds, thousands of students I've had, and now they are scattered all around the world, as far as South Korea, India, Myanmar, and who knows where else? A few from China, from South America, Brazil, right? All over the world, right? So they know me by name. They know me, so I'm a popular preacher. No, I'm not. Just because they know me by name doesn't mean I'm popular. Another one said, but you recommended John MacArthur and Paul Washer to me in class when we first met. Yes, that was in 2008. That was in 2008 because you said you were following Joel Osteen. You were following men like that. And so compared to Joel Osteen, I said, no, MacArthur is better and Washer is better because they talk about more serious things. But I didn't give a blanket endorsement of them. And since then, I've learned more things about what they believe, like such as in the MacArthur Study Bible, that MacArthur in his Study Bible Check this out. Look it up yourself. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Romans chapter 9. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 8. 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 9. Check these verses in the MacArthur Study Bible and you will see that he denies predestination. Also, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 7. Check these passages in the MacArthur Study Bible, and you will see that John MacArthur believes in free will 
he denies election and predestination. But he is supposedly one of the new Calvinists, one of the old ones now, right? He was one of the forefathers of new Calvinism, along with R.C. Sproul and Tim Keller, MacArthur, John MacArthur. But read his study Bible and you will see. I'm not distorting him and others who have read him are not distorting him. In fact, when they read it, their jaws drop. They're shocked. I never knew he believed it. And even to the 2020 edition of the MacArthur Study Bible. All of the editions, there have been a few editions, but even the latest one, the 2020 edition of the MacArthur Study Bible. You will find it. He denies it. So if I point this out to them, then why won't you repent? That's because they want to model their church after John MacArthur and have thousands of people come. At least hundreds if they live in a tiny town. They accuse us of pride when it is actually biblical convictions of faith, boldness, and courage. When we have biblical convictions of faith, we have boldness and courage, then they say, you're proud. They are actually the proud ones boasting in men. And I know what that's like. I've been in a full-time professor about 12 years, and I know what celebrityism is all about. I've seen it, I've experienced it, and I, and I had my conscience pricked, and I said, how long is this gonna continue? And I, and I said, it's, I can keep my head down, I can keep a low profile, I can get along with others, and I did. Contrary to the way my antagonists, my enemies say. They say I'm divisive, no. Because they, they are the ones that are scavengers who take bits and pieces from a filthy dumpster of rotten food, from a filthy dumpster, when they could go to the original source and get the fresh food and know exactly what happened on that occasion or in that incident or on that date or in this other institution or with that friend. They could know that if they wanted to know it, but no. They are scavengers, and that's what Joab is. He is a scavenger feeding on the bits and pieces of rotten food from a filthy, stinking, nasty dumpster because he's a nasty man on the inside. Okay, what does the Scripture say about celebrities? 1 Kings 22.13, 1 Kings 22.13. Then the messenger who went, uh, who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Behold now. The words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. But let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. This is to Micaiah, a true prophet. The false prophets were consulted, and the false prophets are telling Ahab what Ahab wants to hear. Not what he needs to hear, the truth, but what he wants to hear. And this here, the messenger, says to Micaiah, listen, Everybody else is saying the same thing, so add your two cents to what they're saying. Be favorable, just like everybody else. And Micaiah resists the temptation. He resists the temptation and tells him the truth. Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Galatians 1.10, we read, Am I now seeking the, the favor of men or of God? Or am I still striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be 
a bondservant of Christ. And in reference to the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.15, was he popular or not? Did he have many, many, many faithful friends to the very end or not? 2 Timothy 1.15, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Figilus and Hermogenes. All who are in Asia turned away from me at his moment of need. 2 Timothy 4.10 and 11, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. And verse 16, 416, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. And what, when he says, may it not be counted against them, he's hoping for their repentance because he knows they have genuine faith, but they had a moment of weakness. He's not talking about these overtly belligerent, proud, reprobate people, because he says something different about the, that kind of a man in 14. Alexander, 14 and 15, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. In the case of Alexander, this is the obstinate, wicked reprobate. But in the case of verse 16, he's talking about those he knows have true faith, but they had a moment of weakness, and he's praying that they repent, that that sin might not be counted against them on the day of judgment. There's a difference. But was Paul popular or not? No. Not in the sense of today's popular preachers. He did not have a church of hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands. Nothing like that whatsoever. And this should not surprise us. Noah among seven others, a total of eight. And the whole world was destroyed. Lot, he only was, he only in the city of Sodom. Only him. Not even his wife. And even his two daughters exposed themselves later in Genesis 19. Genesis 18 and 19. Only Lot was left. Elijah was so lonely when he fled from Ahab and Jezebel in 1 Kings 19. He thought he was the only one in Israel in the sense that nobody else was around him. But God assured him there's 7,000. And if you do the arithmetic of the population in Israel in 850 B.C., in the time of Elijah the prophet, you'll find that it had to be at least 7 million people. 7,000 out of 7 million is not a large number. It is, but all seven million say, I know the Lord, I believe in the Lord. They'll all say that. In Israel, they'll all say that. Micaiah, we read him, 1 Kings 22. John the Baptist, Paul, we just read about him. And Christ. John the Baptist and Christ. Did the crowds that followed them, did all of them truly believe? No. No. In the case of John, he was a novelty. Who is this man? He was a novelty. In the case of Christ, he had miracles. He was more of a regular man, eating and drinking in that sense.
But he had miracles, and they followed him for that reason. But otherwise, no. Otherwise, not at all. Then, on the matter of our faith, uh, or faith and faith convictions, which they say is arrogance. They say arrogance. The Bible says it is boldness. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 30, uh, 13. Acts 4 and verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. 431, 431. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Began to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. 9, 26 to 30. Speaking of the Apostle Paul. In verse 27 it says, He had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Verse 28. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. He's speaking out boldly, the Apostle Paul. And they hate it because those with true convictions will say it as it is. Just as it is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. So also we believe, therefore also we speak. What we believe, we openly speak. 2 Corinthians 4.13 Then, about, about them boasting in men. Boasting in men. Didn't Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah the prophet, 9, 23 to 24, warn us not to boast in men? 9.23. Of course, these enemies will say, we're not boasting in men. We're just citing them. We're just quoting them. No, you're boasting. So don't wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. You are boasting in men. 9.23. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Galatians 6. Galatians 6, 14. But may it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May it never be that I should boast except in what? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the word of the cross. We boast in the cross. Boasting in the cross is humility. Boasting in the word of the cross is humility. But when they don't boast in the word of the cross, they are the arrogant ones. They are the ones who lack humility. They are the ones who won't humble themselves before the Lord. They are the ones who have a proud heart, not the ones who trust in the word. And the final point on this matter is number six. Number six. Being antinomian, 
That is being lawless. Antinomian means anti-law. Being antinomian, they don't want any rules, regulations, laws, commandments. They reject holiness. They reject holiness. They'll say, no, no, we don't reject holiness. We just do it the right way. No, you don't do it the right way because you ignore the Bible. So you're doing it the wrong way. Any use of words like holiness, sin, obedience, commandments, and law is branded as legalism or Pharisaism, they say. Whenever we use these words, and they are in the New Testament, and we're using them in context, they call us legalistic and they call us Pharisees. But legalism has a biblical meaning and definition. Um, legalism is not what they say it is. There is a biblical meaning to it. So, here's what we've heard. Quote, I hear a lot of do this and that. Do this and do that in your sermons lately. You're drifting into, or they are drifting into legalism. You make a big deal about the Lord's Day and church attendance. You make a big deal about head coverings. You preach the law without the grace of Christ. You want women to be doormats. Now, most of these were from, uh, the majority were from one source, a couple of them were from other sources, but this is the kind of thing that people say. Is this really biblical? Is their view the biblical view? Or is our view the biblical view? Does it not say in Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, 14, pursue holiness, or pursue, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Does it not say in 1 Peter 1, 13 to 17, Therefore gird your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be, to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. <gasps> That's the word. You're not supposed to use that word, obey. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. That's another forbidden word, fear. There are certain four-letter words that they despise to hear. Fear, holy, obey. They don't want those and they make law a four-letter word, too. Don't say the word law. Don't say that. If you say the word law, you're a Pharisee. You're a Pharisee. But the Bible says so. So who's right? Who's right? The Bible does not teach the grace of God so that you can live as you please. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Okay, I'm just going to ask one follow-up on that last point. Um, people will often say that if you preach the law too much, then you can drift into legalism. Or if you are per pursuing holiness, it can lead to self-righteousness. 
But is it possible, if you're pursuing true holiness, to ever become self-righteous? And is it possible to preach the law correctly too much? Does that make sense? Yes. Actually, no. Isn't that a false dichotomy? It's a false dichotomy. It's, the statement is full of false assumptions. False assumptions. If we're doing it the biblical way on any subject, if we're doing it the biblical way, then how can you be led astray? They are assuming we're not doing it the biblical way, but they themselves won't consult the Bible properly, accurately, to do it the biblical way. So that their statements assume that we're going to pursue it in an unbiblical way, but we're not. We're trying to encourage you and warn you to do it the biblical way. How can you follow the Bible as much as possible, meticulously, on marriage, and then... If you do that too carefully, you know what? You might divorce your wife. It makes no sense. Not if you're doing it the biblical way. If you're doing it the biblical way, you'll never divorce your wife. So when they, when they say these things, they're actually putting two things in the Bible in contradiction. Yes. If they say, well, if you overemphasize the law, then you're not going to preach grace. Or if you overemphasize grace, then you're not going to preach obedience. But those are putting things that are not contrary to one another. No, no. So you can't preach true grace too much no. in an unbiblical way. No, no. If you're preaching it from the Bible. If you're preaching it from the Bible with the biblical meaning. If they say, well, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so forth, you don't show any love. Well, you mean when I confront Cephas to his face because he stood condemned? You're accusing me of not loving? Or when I tell you, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth, you're accusing me of being unloving? Or if I say, because you're believing false doctrines, who has bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? If I use those words to startle you to wake up from your stupor, and I say, who has bewitched you, you foolish, or you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's Galatians 3.1. If, if I say that to anybody or to an audience, you're going to accuse me of being unloving to my audience? Well, Paul did that in the letter of Galatians. All of these I'm quoting from the book of Galatians. He did that. So when he's promoting, the Apostle Paul is promoting the fruit of the Spirit, including love and other virtues, it doesn't mean that love excludes calling somebody an enemy or saying, you are being bewitched, or you are foolish, or you stand condemned. Or, he even says in Galatians 5, uh, 5.10, um, would that those who are troubling you, 5.12, would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves, because their sin is pushing circumcision, so Paul says, I wish that these heretics, these false teachers, would just mutilate their sexual organ. Just mutilate it. Is that loving or unloving? See, what they do, they make one word in the Bible contradict another because they, they pollute the word love in a way that the Bible does not describe it. In, according to their own depraved imaginations, 
for their excuses for sin. That's why they do that. So love cannot mean you can never say to somebody, I wish that you would even mutilate yourself. Love does not mean you can never say to somebody, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Or you foolish Galatians? Or who has bewitched you? Or you stand condemned? That's not unloving. But they do that. And those are all in the same book. They're all in the same. That's why I'm quoting them all in the same book. They're all in the same book. And you can find it even in the same chapter where he's accusing them of things in chapter 5. He says, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Galatians 5.4, that's in the same chapter even. Wow, well, that's a strong accusation, Paul. That's unloving. How can you say that? All it is that they're just not eating with each other. At least that's the example in chapter 2. They're just not eating with each other. So how, why are you being so severe against the Galatians, Paul? That's unloving. No, it's not unloving. Look at it the biblical way, which they don't. 